0: Deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators.
1: Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm Adam Schick. With both baseball and softball off to solid starts to cement their number one status, we decided to focus 100% of our attention this week on the Florida men's basketball team as they continue their push toward March Madness. In doing so, we'll recap the last week of action with FloridaGators.com senior writer Chris Harry, go in-depth on the LSU scouting report with assistant coach Jordan Mincy, and start talking about Kentucky with the voice of the Gators' Mick Hubert. But first, with bubbles bursting all over the country... Mike White's team endured a grueling week that saw them lose a heartbreaker in overtime at South Carolina before coming home and seeing Vanderbilt set fire to the Nets in the o And while the Gators certainly could have played better in their penultimate home appearance, Chris Harry says sometimes you have to give credit where credit is due.
2: This game kind of reminded me of the Alabama game a couple weeks ago when Alabama came here as a really desperate team trying to fight for their relevancy in terms of you know maybe the postseason. Vanderbilt right on the cusp. Most things you see them out or last four out or something like that. They had to win this game. This was the Vanderbilt team, Adam, that everyone thought we were going to see this year. They went into the season picked second in the league behind Kentucky. Two possible first-round draft picks in Damian Jones and Wade Baldwin the fourth. And those guys played like it. Damian Jones. I mean, I was in here when she. O'Neill was here, what, 25 years ago or something. He didn't go 12 for 13 from the floor. I mean, he did whatever he wanted to against Florida's interior defense. you got to give him credit. So many of their shots came at the end of the shot clock, too. They were patient. They executed. And, you know, Florida's a very, very good defense. They can be an elite defense. They were not an elite defense. Vanderbilt was a very elite offense. Kevin Stallings is tremendous when it comes to actions and, and sets. And, yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons he's lasted as long. I know Billy Donovan used to say he was a night to prepare against. I think the Florida coaches have found that out this year also. But we have talked about what Jones did. We talked about what Matthew Fisher Davis did shooting threes, Jeff Roberson, uh, uh, Baldwin Wade. Then you turn around and you see uh, Dorian Finney-Smith and Kayvon Allen are Florida's two best players, and they combine to go one for 14. And a lot of that has to do with Vanderbilt was doing. They X those guys on the scouting report. At times you saw Dorian Finney-Smith was Jones was covering him. Jones moves pretty well for a guy that size. So Florida never really got anything going. I mean, they're down right out of the box. And you fight and you fight to get back in the game. And you have a seven-foot center, has a one-foot shot with three seconds left in the half. It gets blocked. A guy catches it and throws in an 80-foot shot. Go from a tie game to a five-point deficit and everyone walking in the locker room with their heads hanging. The game wasn't over then. You just you kind of got a feeling something weird was going to happen.
1: Mike White's talked a lot about the margin for error for this team is so small. And, and even on top of that, you see how close these games are down the stretch in the SEC. Florida's a Dorian Finney-Smith free throw away from winning at South Carolina, and then who knows how the game against Vanderbilt goes. So with so few opportunities left, it just seems like the Gators need to find that same desperation that you mentioned Alabama and
2: Vanderbilt both had when they beat Florida? Well, they have it now. (laughs) They're going to LSU Saturday. I tell you what, LSU's a desperate team. Tuesday night, they lost again. They lost by 20 at Arkansas. They are in an absolute tailspin, and i mean, sure Bracketology this week is going to call that uh, a potential elimination game. Now, there's still plenty Florida can do. I mean, if they could go to LSU and win, they got Kentucky coming here, and that's a gold star on your resume, but they're not going to beat Kentucky. They're not going to be anybody allowing 58% shooting from the floor, 10 of 20 from the three-point line. You mentioned margin for error. Mike White talks about that and what he says is our margin for error is, is so slim because of the struggles they have on offense they have to be great on defense. They were far from great against Vanderbilt but I just think Vanderbilt had so much to do with it not that Florida didn't have breakdowns they certainly did. I think uh, Mike White used the, the phrase a couple boneheaded breakdowns but uh, uh, here's where they are now. You know, They're 17 and 11 I think the magic number now given they lost two SEC games at home. I think the magic number has gone up to 20. I thought at one time maybe it was 19 and 12. I think now they got to win 20 games somehow, and now I'm bringing in the SEC tournament. I tell you what, losing to Vanderbilt, Florida's very much in the mix for a top four seed to play on Friday. Well, now they're probably going to have to play on Thursday because it's all jumbled up there. By the end of the week, they could be around the, the eighth or ninth place team in the league right now.
1: For the last week, point guard play has been a really big topic of discussion with his team. And Chioza and Hill, that combination wasn't working that well. So against Vanderbilt, Brandon Francis Ramirez gets a really strong look, and then he doesn't perform that well offensively. So where do the Gators stand right now with their point guard rotation, and where do they go here down the stretch?
2: I think that tells you everything you need to know about their point guard rotation. They played three of them. I had a long talk with Mike White about this on our bus ride back from South Carolina. What do you want them to do? Do you want him to throw it into John Igbunu? He has a lot of turnovers this year. He doesn't always catch the ball. Sometimes he gets in there and he can be effective, whether it's some kind of post move or something. But teams have figured out how to guard him, by and large. Or, okay, you want Casey Hill or you want Chris Chioza to try to drive the ball. Well, they're short guards. And they're not dumping passes over people. they got to wrap around passes to guys. they got to find windows. That's not easy. Dorian Finney-Smith is not a guy who goes and gets his own shot. Devin Robinson is not a guy who goes and gets his own shot. Kayvon Allen is a guy who goes and gets his own shot. Shot, but now, when he has an NBA guy guarding him like Wade Baldwin with those arms that go down to his ankles and holds him to 0 for 7 from the floor this is a very limited offensive team that's why their defense is so important and they're going to have a really hard time in a situation like this when they give up 58 percent from the floor 10 of 20 from three-point range that's just too much for a team to overcome That has so many inconsistencies and is so unreliable offensively that's what he talks about margin for about Head coaches get most of the attention on the
1: sidelines in college basketball, but the majority of the legwork that goes into preparing the team is handled by the assistants. We wanted to dive a little further into their responsibilities to find out how they shape the team and prepare their scouting reports, so we sat down with first-year assistant Jordan Mincy and asked him how the new staff got the existing players to buy in.
3: One of the things that we try to do is just build relationships. coach is really good at uh, building relationships, and the thing that he urges us, especially as assistants, and we get a lot of time to spend with the kids, obviously, uh, more than the head coach does, he gave us the opportunity just to make sure that we build relationships, get to know the guys, get to know their stories, get to know you know their families, uh, whether it be you know Johnny Bono and his mom being in uh, Nigeria or getting to know Devin Robson, how close he is with his, his younger sister, and uh, just getting to know those guys and their families, their situation, and uh, also getting to know their dreams and their aspirations, where they want to go in life.
1: You have a lot of playing experience and you played so recently. What does that do in terms of helping these guys understand what you're telling them when you can get out on the floor and relate to them so
4: well?
3: The opportunity of playing in college basketball and especially knowing certain positions and time and possessions and being in those uh, game-like situations um, it has been a blessing, uh, especially for the point guard situation, the wings and obviously with the bigs. But knowing what those guys are going through, their ups and downs, being able just to relate some of my stories, my scars, some of the things that you know I've experienced while playing, especially late game situations. Just tell them, look, these are things you want to look for. These are things that are going to happen. Expect this on the ball screen. This is how they've been playing us, And these are what teams are going to focus on. So the first time maybe you got in the paint person, so now they're going to adjust. So obviously you need to work on your mid-range game or maybe expanding your game on these different areas. That's just the things that you try to draw on, especially from your playing experience. What are the
4: day-to-day responsibilities like for the assistant coaches? I tell people this all the time, and
3: we laugh about it, but it's a 24-hour job. I mean, you're a psychiatrist, you're a coach, you're a motivational speaker, you're everything. These guys are away from their families, so obviously they need a support system. They need somebody they can rely on, somebody they can talk to, especially in their personal lives. It's a hard job, but at the same time, it's a job that we all enjoy, especially our staff.
4: How are things broken down between you and Dusty and is it Do you all do a lot of the same things, or do you have
3: different areas that you specialize in? One of the great things about working for Coach Mike White, our head coach, is he gives all his equal responsibility. During the hiring process, he said, you know, I'm looking for guys who want to be potential head coaches one day. And the way that I run my program, everybody's equal. Everybody does the same responsibility. But I do that in order to form you guys and mold you guys into potential head coaches one day. So we all have the same responsibilities, whether it be Dusty working with the point guards, myself working with the wings, and Coach Darius Nichols working with the bigs. We all have the same as far as recruiting, scouting, player development. We all have the same job. When
4: you talk about scouting, and that's a big part of what you guys do, how far in advance does that process
3: begin? As soon as you finish your last scout, it starts. You know, watching film anywhere between eight and seven of their last games looking at how they played us in the first game, looking at, you know, what key personnel hurt us and different things and actions they ran versus us and maybe the defense that we can expect this time. Those are things that you kind of look at and you try to start as early as you can. Maybe that's uh, two weeks out or a week out, but it takes a majority of your day, I'll say that, and you put a lot of time into it to make sure you get our guys prepared. When coaches always say,
1: we're just talking about the next game, and players say, we're only focusing on the next game, is it weird for you being involved in the day-to-day of of game prep when you're preparing for two games down the road.
3: It is. And at times, you know, it's funny. You, you catch yourself thinking about different personnel or you saying certain things like, hey, look, you know, Vanderbilt's coming up and uh, maybe a guy like Jones uh, for Vanderbilt is really good. He's like, hey, look, you know, Ben's going to do this. And he's like, well, Coach, who's Ben? Oh, well, sorry. <laughs> I know that's LSU, but never mind. Sorry, Jones for, for Vanderbilt. And, you know, those are certain things that they kind of conflict. Like I said, it, it's different, but at the same time, it's fun. Like I said, it's always a different experience, especially when you're learning so many different styles of basketball. and The SEC has so many different head coaches and so many different playing styles that it's a big-time learning experience for us.
1: As you're preparing for LSU and you've got the scout in LSU, how is this second time different than the first time around now that you've played them and seen so much more of them? LSU
3: is one of the most talented teams in the country. You know, they have number one pick, uh, Ben Simmons, on the roster. Um, his game is very versatile. So when you're trying to prepare for a team that has multiple guys who can go for 20 points or more on any given night, it's really difficult, especially just to key in on one guy. Keith Hornsby, uh, a really good shooter for him. I don't know if he'll play or may not play, but obviously he's a guy who's very talented, had a lot of big nights in the SEC, and then a guy like Tim Quarterman, their point guard, who's very versatile. You know, he plays the one to the three for him and at any given night he can go off as we've seen with this big time game versus Kentucky but um, like I said preparing for him a second time around is difficult because you know that maybe the first time around like I said we won the first one But this time around, we know that the same things that we've ran offensively and defensively may not work because we know they're going to be doing the same thing, scouting and preparing for that game. So we just try to counteract and try to get our guys to know that, you know, you had a good game, but don't feel good about it because now we're going to their home court and they're going to be prepared for us just like we're prepared for them.
1: When you've got a guy like Ben Simmons that sucks up so much of the attention around a team, and it can be misleading because from the outside you think, oh, what's all about Ben Simmons? But when you're as in-depth as you are, does it kind of scare you to think that so many people? people just pay attention to Simmons when you know there's other ways they can hurt you. Yeah,
3: it does, uh, especially, you know, doing the 1st guy report, you look at it, and Ben Simmons, um, obviously, you know, he, he's a very talented young man, and he, uh, he does so many different things, and, you know, college basketball has been missing a guy like that for a long time. But um, when you look at their team, they're so versatile. Like Victor, they play him at the five, he, he's a highly skilled big, really good in the mid-range area, and like I just talked about with Quarterman and, and also Hornsby on the wings, and also to uh, mention, you know, number two, Antonio Blakeney for him, uh, a former McDonald's All-American and a freshman from the state of Florida. He's really good as well. He's been playing really good, especially the last five games. I, I believe he scored 20 points in a couple of those games. So, you know, like I said, any given night with their talented roster, they can go for 20 or more. So you really can't focus in on Ben Simmons. And also you have to know that Ben Simmons, with his passing abilities, he gets those guys involved. So you always have to be aware of him, but yet aware of the guy you're guarding as well.
1: I know this is something that's got to be kind of scary to think about, but a big part of this chess match is trying to figure out how they will adjust to what you did the first time. So how much of your energy goes into trying to anticipate what they will do differently relative to what
3: you will do differently? We try not to put too much energy into what they'll do because you know coaches they look at the game differently especially um, when you're scouting us I mean you know we haven't played much zone lately they've probably seen that okay now they're playing zone and they're doing different things defensively and offensively they're running new sets so you never know what to expect from a team but as far as our end, we try to make sure that we're teaching our guys these are things they hurt us with the first game they'll probably make some adjustments but at the same time stick true to our principles offensively and defensively, and hopefully come out with a good enough game plan to get the win. To sum it all up, help us finish this
4: sentence. The Gators will sweep LSU this season if?
3: The Gators will sweep LSU if we have an unbelievable game plan, stick to our personnel, stick to our principles, and make sure that we don't do anything that's not solid. And hopefully rolling a a couple three-pointers here and there, and we might have a chance to sweep them.
1: It's been a while since we've had a chance to chat with Mick Hubert, and with the Kentucky Wildcats about to come into town on the eve of the O-Dome renovations, we thought it was the perfect time to hear some of his recollections of both the storied rivalry and the legendary building that has housed many of those meetings. But before delving into that treasure trove, we asked the Voice of the Gators for his impressions of year one under Mike White as the season nears its conclusion.
0: Well, I really think, Adam, that that he and his coaching staff have done a really good job. They got themselves immersed right away with the players and starting to build the relationships. And I think that was very important because these guys were recruited for the most part by the previous staff, and and Billy and his staff have been here for 19 years. And so there was a little bit of a a get-to-know-one-another part. And and then when the season unfolded, you know, I I think that – you know, Mike was hoping that uh, this team would shoot it a little bit better. He heard in the offseason, probably uh, over and over and over again, how bad they were a free throwing team last year. And he thought, well, that was last year. That hasn't happened this year. And, you know, basically they came out and kind of continued where they left off and being a, in not a great free throwing team. So now he's experienced that. Yet we've had pockets of games where we've shot the ball very well. I think from a field goal perspective, uh, the Gators also struggled to make shots. And then we had a stretch, several, probably about uh, three weeks or so so in the middle of January, early February, where for I think six games we were shooting like 47% from the field. So a lot of times people carry over old viewpoints and they just label this team as a bad shooting team. Well, I could say I understand that, but as I would tell people from time to time, hey, do you realize... That in the last six games, they're shooting 47% from the field. You're basing on something that happened the first 17 games and you're omitting the last six games, say, for an example. So, and now here lately, we've kind of gone back into that shooting funk a little bit. So it's been a struggle. But I think the one thing that Mike White has really hammered home to his team is that, you know, offense is going to come and go from night to night, but we can bring our defense with us every single game. And I think a lot of people saw what he did last year at Louisiana Tech and kind of wrongly assumed that this was going to be an offensive driven team, an offensive driven program. And as well as he would love to have that, he's coaching right now, Adam, with what he has. And what he has, he has some guys with some size, some guys with some length. We are very short at the point guard, but if you subtract the point guard spot, we put out guys out there that have pretty good wingspan and pretty good reach, and they're fairly athletic. So they can defend very well. Uh, They're one of the best offensive rebounding teams in the league. Second in the league. I think they're second in the league in total rebounds. So they can rebound and they can defend. I think what happened also, Adam, was the fact that there was a stretch where the Gators were shooting 47% in six games. Their defense kind of regressed. They kind of thought, oh, well, Ball's going in the hole now. We can slack off there. But he's saying, hey, it's great if we make shots, but we can never, ever slack off from the defensive standpoint. So I think that that's been the the, the big success story of this team. It's not the failure to shoot hoops. It's been the success of playing great defense because if this defense wouldn't have been as good as it is, uh, the Gators wouldn't be in contention right now for an NCAA tournament berth. So I, I think there's been great progress made, and yet we know going forward they've got a lot of work to do to bring in some guys that can shoot the ball, which has really uh, never really been a problem here at Florida up until last year and again this year.
1: One guy who shot the ball really well as newcomer is Kayvon Allen, and you've seen so many great shooters here in
0: your time. What does that remind you of? We were at South Carolina a week or so ago, and uh, I ran into Kenyon Weeks coaching up there in North Carolina. He's from Concord, North Carolina and uh, I said Kenyon, I said this Kayvon Allen reminds me of you because when Kenyon came in right away he was a three-point shooter. He really was probably as good a three-point shooter as we had until Lee Humphrey rolled along. Teddy DuPay was a good three-point shooter. We've had some good three-point shooters over over time here but the way Kenyon weak shot the ball right out of high school coming in here is is very reminiscent now to what Kayvon Allen is doing. I didn't know how good a three-point shooter he would be but I knew he would be a scorer and sometimes that score mentality, people think that well, he's going to score points because he's going to take a lot of shots. He's not necessarily at all a volume shooter. He's not a guy that's going to jack up 18 to 20 shots a game. But for a freshman to come in here and he's getting about 11.5, close to 12 points a game, that's the highest scoring freshman average we've had here since Kenny Boynton about five, six years ago. So he's been a really solid contributor and again, you got to credit Mike White for kind of re-recruiting him. I mean, again, he was initially recruited by, by Billy and his staff and uh, they realized the importance of keeping him around and, and getting him back here so he's been a very good addition to this team and I hear people all the time Adam talk about the fact that boy what would this team be like if they had Michael Frazier I don't know what Michael Frazier is thinking right now maybe he's totally happy with his decision but he's not playing in the NBA if he could have maybe come back you know that would have really given this ball club another shooter but that's his decision and Kayvon Allen has kind of stepped in and filled that role and I think he's played very well as the two guard right now so we need a few more guys like that to come around and I also think that uh, hey, look, uh, Chris Chioza is not going to come back six feet three next year, but he's going to come back as a better shooter. He's got a good shot, he's got good form, he's just a little bit undersized. And so sometimes when guys are six three and six four guarding him, it makes that shot a little tougher to get. But I do think he has the potential to knock down some, some big three point shots going forward. Part of this week is going to be a Florida-Kentucky
1: showdown in the Odome. It's always special because of how good Kentucky always is, very high profile. Just talk about how unique that matchup is.
0: Well, it really is a great rivalry, Adam, when you consider that when the league decided to go to 18 games and keep a few common opponents that you would play home and home, well, Florida wanted to make sure that they played Kentucky a lot of people would say, well, you're crazy. Why would you <laughs> want to play Kentucky? No, we realized we want not just one, but two opportunities to beat them. And there are years where we beat them twice. Uh, we went through a string where I think we won seven consecutive games against Kentucky, and no one in the history of the SEC has ever done that. They're going to come in and beat a lot of people. But you've got a great opportunity, so you always want to play the best. Obviously, the building is always sold out, and it's always rocking. And the better you are, the more your team has its fans show up, and the fewer Kentucky fans get in. That's kind of on the Gator fans, because if they don't show up, those Kentucky fans are going to show up, and there's going to be probably 5,000 of them outside the building. Now the question is, is 500 going to get in, or is 3,500 going to get in? That's up to the local fans here. You can uh, hear on television, when Kentucky scores on the road, you have the arena is cheering. I mean, they played a game a week or two ago at South Carolina, that had 18,000 fans there, and Kentucky was blowing them up by 27, and, and the place was going nuts. It wasn't the Gamecock fans cheering, so does bring out the best in both sets of fans so when you're at the home court you've got to win we've had a lot of great victories over Kentucky we've, we've lost a game or two here and some heartbreaking calls or heartbreaking shots I should say but I think Kentucky has great respect for Florida basketball it's a border war of Kentucky and Tennessee but over the last dozen or more years the real battle in the SEC has been Kentucky and Florida how
1: unique is that energy in the o When Kentucky comes to town, how does it feel different for you?
0: It's vibrant because this building can get so loud, the fans being so close to the court, and there's a certain uh, specialty to this game Tuesday as well as a certain bittersweet sadness to this game Tuesday because it's the last time we'll have a basketball game in the O'Connell Center in its current configuration. And while we're all wildly excited about the $65 million project, thinking it's going to be great, we don't know until we actually get in there how that affects the Gators' home home court. We know the home court the Gators have had in this building since 1980, but there's going to be a different you know, figuration of the stands and the seats and whatnot, and you know, you just don't know until you experience that. Uh, so that's why this Tuesday night game, for those people who are going to be in there, get in there with your cameras or whatnot and take some pictures, because you're never going to see the building looking like that ever again. The students are right behind me at the broadcast row. They're so loud, and they're so vocal, and it, it makes it special. Uh, obviously, the attendance has been a little bit down this year. We're probably averaging about a thousand fans a game less than last season but that's what happens when you come off a losing season but uh, I think next year when Mike gets a a few more of his players in here and then next January when we open up the brand new building and that'll be special I I can see the crowds getting right back in here and uh, I I do think it's going to be another great home court advantage for Florida but it is a part of the unknown right now. And that's going to do it for this week's
1: show. Our next episode comes your way next Thursday and we'll cover the final critical week for men's basketball and preview the women's squad as they head to the SEC tournament in Jacksonville. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher so you never miss an episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in the O-Dome.